So continuing our study in the book of Romans, today we will focus on Romans 1 again, but this time verses 18 through 21, but primarily verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen or perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we'll end the reading of God's infallible word at that point. Some years ago, I had a friend who, like me, enjoyed playing the game of soccer, or as the world properly calls it, football. We both played in an amateur adult soccer league, and this man noticed that after a few matches that he didn't feel quite right. And so he went to see his doctor, and after an expensive barrage of tests, it was discovered that he had stomach cancer. Now, he had surgery, and he eventually recovered. But you see, for a long time, that man did not know that he had cancer. It was only after many tests that his discomfort was accurately diagnosed. So in his case, there was the bad news, but then there was the good news. Let me suggest that for us also, Scripture reveals the bad news before giving us the good news. The judgment wrath of God is set forth before his gracious provision of salvation. Look again at verse 18, of course, reading from the ESV. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress. We'll say more about this in a moment, but it means to hold down or hold back the truth. Now, I think we should all know very well that the idea of a wrathful God, that is to say, a just God, is unacceptable to our pagan friends. And it's even a stumbling block for many people who consider themselves Christians. You know, uh, if you were to take a clipboard and go out to the mall, take a pencil with you and do a survey of the public, asking the average passerby, tell me, what do you think God is like? When you think of God, what do you think of? And their answer would be something like, I I think I'm on safe ground here. Oh, well, I think of God as a God of love. And if they're really serious, they'll say, I think of God as unconditional love. I seriously doubt that you would have even one response that said, well, I think of God, I think of God as a God of wrath and justice. Now, certainly it is true that one of God's divine attributes is his divine love. But, you know, I think there are two main reasons that people don't have a biblically balanced view of this. Because to hear the pagans talk, and many poorly informed Christians, God has only one attribute, and that is his divine love. But I think that because we don't have a clear understanding of the depth of our own sinfulness, and we also lack understanding of the nature and depth of God's justice, we don't understand that this is a very serious issue, the wrath of God. 
But you see, all of God's attributes, all of the things that characterize him, are balanced in divine perfection. Maybe another way to say that is that God's righteousness is just as much and just as perfectly balanced as his hatred of wickedness. He loves righteousness just as much and just as perfectly as he hates wickedness. The psalmist says of God in Psalm 45, verse 7, Lord, you have loved righteousness and have detested or hated wickedness. Friends, to appreciate the fullness of God's love for his elect, we must understand the flip side of it, which is the fierceness of his wrath against those who hate his law. God is righteously angry against all who've broken his perfect and holy law. And that's everybody. I'm reminded of the uh, story of the deathbed statement of the American essayist, and I believe he was in the group called the Transcendentalists, which meant he was basically a New Ager by our modern parlance. You know, Thoreau lived, I think it's in the early 19th or late 18th century, 19th century. And on his deathbed, he, uh, he was asked by a Christian friend, well, Henry David Thoreau, have you made your peace with God? To which he, ever the arrogant doubter to the end, said, well, I was not aware that we had ever quarreled. My friends, for all law-breaking and rebellion, God is righteously angry. Some Christians now, they mistakenly, maybe with the best of intentions, I don't know, but they mistakenly think that, that God, you know, because they, they're not comfortable with the image that they have of the Lord as portrayed, say, in Psalms and Proverbs and in the prophets. They think, well, you know, God is revealed as a God of wrath and judgment in the Old Testament, but he becomes, he, he sort of morphs into, he evolves into a God of love when we come to the New Testament. Well, I think the reading that we just had, of course, uh, would put an end to that claim. But, you see, this is an idea that goes way, way back in the history of the church. It is one of the oldest false teachings, one of the oldest heresies. It arose in the A.D. 2nd century. And its proponent was a man named Marcion. And he of this, was of this mindset that Yahweh, the, the mean old God of the Old Testament, was not the same God of Jesus in the New Testament. And so you've got it, and he even, he even created his own canon of scripture that consisted mainly of the book of Acts, the gospel of Luke, and I think maybe the book of Proverbs, if that. But you see, the totality of God's law word reveals unmistakably both the love of God and his wrathful displeasure with those who hate him and his law. So then let me suggest that as we think about what Paul has written here, let's understand these things about the wrath of God, and there are five things in particular. The first is the divinity of the wrath of God. Now, that's sort of an odd phrase, isn't it? The divinity of God's wrath. But you see, because his wrath is of divine origin, it is unlike anything that we know in this world. God's anger is very different from ours. Because his is not a momentary, emotional, and uncontrolled anger. The wrath of God is not like human anger because ours is corrupted by sin. The wrath of God is always and completely righteous. 
God never flies off the handle and loses his temper. Professor John Murray, professor of theology at my alma mater, in his, in my opinion, unmatched commentary on the book of Romans, wrote these words, and I quote him, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. God cannot be holy and not be angry with sin and evil. Holiness cannot tolerate unholiness. As the prophet Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 1.13, Your eyes, O Lord, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And I think that... um, In some measure, we can take a glimpse of this even within ourselves. Surely you've seen the videos in recent weeks and months of the rise of evil and violence in our society today. It is unprecedented. I mean, there's always been evil and violence in our society in these United States, and of course, there have always been bad people and all, all the rest of it, but I, I don't think anybody would disagree, unless you've just been living in a hole for the past five years, that we, ha- we are in unprecedented times, and I'm going to say that again when it comes to these issues. Surely you've seen the videos of innocent bystanders at bus stops or on a subway or a subway station or on a school bus being set upon and beaten senseless by savage thugs, barbaric savages. I think when we see these things, I I would hope that there's an inborn indignation that wells up inside of us when we see these things happening. And and that is something that that is recognized as an essential element of a civilized society. The the anger that we have against the, the violence against innocent people. We expect people to be outraged by gross injustice and cruelty. By the way, that is largely a biblical attribute, a biblical concept, a Christian ideal. In the pagan world, especially the world in which Paul wrote this letter, the Roman world, Roman men of a certain class were basically expected to never show public compassion or mercy. It was, it was seen as a sign of weakness. So I'm, I'm just conjecturing. I may be way off base here, but I don't think I am. Some of these scenes that we've seen of violence on our streets, if you could transport, you know, a a Roman to that scene, he would just keep walking by because it would be considered not something he would, uh, you know, deign to be involved in. It would show him being weak. In one commentary I consulted on this verse, the writer said this, There can be no sadder token of an utterly powerless moral condition than not being able to be angry with sin. And with sinners. Let that sink in for a moment. There is no greater evidence, to paraphrase what he wrote, of a completely powerless moral condition than a society, a culture, an individual that are not able to be angry with sin and sinners. Friends, in Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, we read these words God is the judge of the upright, but he is angry with the wicked, with evildoers every day. God is perfectly angry with sin and sinners all the time with a holy wrath and fury. All right, so that's the first thing about this wrath. It is of divine origin. But secondly, there is a continuity to God's wrath. The second part of verse 18 there indicates that there is 
a continuing revelation of this wrath. It is, it is continually and perpetually being demonstrated. God's wrath has always been revealed to and put upon sinful people. You can start with Adam and Eve in the garden as they trusted in the word of the serpent against God. And then as we learned in our own study in the book of Genesis, God's wrath was revealed against all humanity in the flood event. And then continuing through the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right down to the drowning of Pharaoh's army. I think it's worth wondering in our time, what about where we live? There appears to be, frankly, great benefit in wickedness today, doesn't there? I mean, the, the, uh, the tide is, has risen so high of evil and, and decadence and corruption in our society There doesn't seem to be any retribution or anybody being made to pay for what they're doing. But let's jump ahead. Hold your place here in Romans 1 and just look down to chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1117. Romans 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul speaks to this issue. He says, but because of your your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one of you according to his works. There is a continuity of this wrath, and it will be revealed. Thirdly, there is the range of this wrath. Again, in verse 18, it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So this is a far-ranging judgment leveled against all who deserve it. You know, there's an interesting video series that I've been following on YouTube for some months now. And this is a a live recorded video of a man who has a a, a, like a body camera and he drives around in an SUV that is well stocked with food items, health items, uh, clothing, uh, all kinds of things like this that he drives around the city of Tucson, Arizona and gives out these things to the, the homeless population there, many of whom are camping on the side of bridges, under overpasses, standing on street corners with signs begging for money. Now, he calls, the, the, the name of that video channel is called The Goodness in People. And the videos usually end with some sort of statement like, no one ever got poor, or nobody became, ever became impoverished by giving to others. And he hands out these goods and supplies and, and store gifts cards that people have donated money to him to buy, To any and all homeless people, apparently. Now look, I have no idea about the spiritual status of that man before God. And there's nothing on his channel, on his page, that indicates that he's doing this out of Christian conviction. But the point is, the infallible word of the Lord teaches us that no amount of so-called goodwill or giving to the poor or helpfulness to others will exclude the unredeemed person from God's judgment. Certainly it is the case that some people are more immoral than others. And it is certainly the case that God's law exhorts us and indeed requires us to express goodwill, especially to those of the household of faith, to give to the poor, especially of the household of faith, to be helpful to others and considerate. But no matter, the truth is that no one who deserves it escapes the wrath of God. All of us are the proper targets and recipients of God's wrath, and we will all receive it, but for the saving mercy of Christ Jesus. And that leads me to the fourth thing, the target, the targets of this wrath. 
It's the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All of the ungodliness that they manifest. Now, godlessness refers to a lack of reverence for or devotion to and worship of the true God, the creator. Now, Paul will go on to say here, some of you already know this, but he'll, he'll go on to say that this, this attitude of suppressing the truth of unrighteousness and the denying of the God that they clearly know exists is manifest in the worshiping of the creation and not the creator. The worshiping of birds and trees and rocks and statues and all that sort of thing. So then this, this godlessness, this attitude, leads directly to some form, whether it be in a formal setting like ours or just within the interior heart, to some form of false worship. And what Paul is observing here is that godliness unavoidably leads to wickedness. Another way of saying that is that if we violate the first four commandments that teach us how to obey God and what his law requires regarding him, then that will always lead to the violations of the other six commandments. Man's hostility toward other men originate with his being at war with God and at war within himself. You know, I'm sure that many times people have heard that the crime that we see is all the result of the environment of the criminal. And back of that is the idea that people are basically good. People are basically good, but then they find themselves in very difficult environmental circumstances. They're poor. They don't have enough food to eat. They don't have enough clothes to wear. Uh, They've been abused by their parents or a parent. Uh, All of these kind of things. And that's what turns them into criminals. People do bad things because of poverty and oppression. That's the standard communist Marxist line of thinking. Some years ago, a groundbreaking study was undertaken by two well-tenured psychologists. It was a 15-year research program intended to prove that that was the case about the origin of crime. Well, in 1977, the results of that research program were published. And let me tell you, it was, it was hit like a bombshell. It was very controversial because those two doctors found to their utter amazement that the cause of crime cannot be traced to environment. Rather, they concluded, now get this, that crime is the result of individuals making, as they put it, wrong moral choices. Well, what do you know? My friends, our Lord is no respecter of persons. He hates the sin of any people. And those sins inevitably bring upon the unrepentant the wrath of God. And then fifthly and finally, we have the reason for God's wrath. And that too is in the latter part of the, of the verse. These men and by implication, of course, women who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. My friends, everyone born into this world is bent toward sin and evil. We are inclined from birth toward disobedience to God. I like the way one of the other translations renders this part of the verse where it says, the godlessness and wickedness of men who in their wickedness, now notice, keep suppressing the truth. So they've captured something of the verb form 
about suppressing the truth, that it, it implies a continual, nonstop suppression of that truth. In other words, Paul is saying that such people are constantly attempting to suppress the truth. It's an instinct. In other words, this doesn't mean that the, the really bad people get out of the bed every morning and before they do anything else, they think, you know what, today I think is going to be another day of me suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. No, that's not the way it works. They don't have to think anything. We don't have to think anything because it's built into us. It's a natural inclination. You don't have to uh, gin up the feeling when you're hungry. It, it just shows up. It's there. And it's the same with this. Wickedness is so much a part of our human nature that every person has a built-in natural compelling desire to suppress and oppose God's truth. And the fact that we are internally maybe on what used to be called a subconscious level, aware of this. This is what leads to most emotional and psychological problems. Now, of course, modern psychology and psychiatry and so-called science deny biblical truth, so they're constantly looking at all kinds of solutions. And I'm sure most of us are aware today, the one solution that they're giving to us are drugs. Psychotropic drugs, all types of drugs, regardless of whether they're ultimately good for us, because the companies that manufacture them get very, very wealthy in convincing you to take them. Look at what he says in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So this is not something that, it's like the, you know, the, the proverbial, what about the poor, innocent native in South America or Africa who's never heard about God, how could they be held accountable for something they've never heard about? Well, I hope you see the answer to that. It's right in front of you in Romans 1. There are no such innocent people. Because what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. He means, Paul means that everyone, no matter who they are or where they are or their status in life, have had plenty of opportunities to know God's word. Their very being testifies to them of his existence and of his nature. But we are all inclined to turn away, if not run away, from that witness. And I think this is nowhere more clearly demonstrated early on than in the ministry of our Lord, who even when faced with the presence of the incarnate Son of God in the flesh, the people among whom he walked denied it. John three nineteen to 20 indicates this. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And then the psalmist in Psalm 14 famously said, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. But he adds, They are corrupt. They do abominable things. There is none who does good. People are naturally opposed to the idea of a God of justice and a holy God. They don't like that idea at all because they instinctively realize that they are answerable to this God. They must answer to him. They are accountable to him. Their whole inner being testifies to that fact. And the lives of the unredeemed, the unelect, the pagan people is a life of denying and suppressing that continually. I came across an interesting story about a wealthy Chinese businessman who came to this country to visit a medical university that he'd become familiar with. Now, I don't know, this happened some time ago, and I don't know if this man was from mainland China or Taiwan. 
But he toured this medical university, and during the tour, he was shown a particularly powerful microscope that was being used for research. Now, one of those things, you know, that's like the size of that piano there. This was one of these microscopes. It was a desktop sort of microscope, but it had a particularly powerful magnification ability. Well, he liked it so much, he decided to buy one for himself, and he bought it and took it back to China with him, where he had it shipped there. And one day after he returned from his trip, he decided to take a handful of the rice he was getting ready to cook and eat and put it under that microscope. And much to his shock, he discovered there were these tiny living creatures crawling all through the rice. Now, these were invisible to the naked eye. And even just a normal telescope would not reveal their presence. But this one surely did. Now, he liked rice a lot, part of his daily diet. And so he wondered, what am I going to do? Finally, he concluded that there was only way one, out of the dile- one way out of the dilemma. He would destroy the instrument that ruined his rice-eating experience. So in a similar way, that is the way it goes for people who hate God. He smashed that microscope to pieces. And you hear a story like that, and it sounds utterly stupid and foolish. Many people, though, do the same thing when they see and understand God's law. They hate it and they reject it because it reveals not only their sin, but also God's wrath, his displeasure. Some years ago, our late father and brother in the faith, Dr. R.C. Sproul, told of an invitation that he had received to speak at a university. Now, he was invited to do these sort of things many times. Sometimes they were Christian colleges and universities. Sometimes they weren't. And in this case, it was a secular university, but... The organization, the extracurricular club at the university that invited him was the Campus Atheist Club. They wanted him to come speak to them. And so he said, and I'm quoting him here, he said, they asked me to present the intellectual case for the existence of God. And he said, I I did that. And as I went through the various classical arguments for God's existence, I kept everything on an intellectual academic level. And he said, everything was very safe and comfortable until I got to the end of my lecture. And at that point, I said, I've been giving you arguments for the existence of God. But he said, I feel like I'm I'm carrying coals to Newcastle. In other words, I've I've been wasting my time. Because I have to tell you that, that I don't really have to prove to any of you that God exists. Because I think you already know it. Matter of fact, I know that you already know it. He said, your problem is not that you don't know that God exists. Your problem is that you despise the God whom you do know exists. Your problem, he said, is not intellectual or academic. It is moral. You hate God. Now, it is true that those who hate God, that's the end of the quote, by the way. I I wish he'd have gone into more detail about what happened after that, but he didn't. But it is true that for those who hate God and those whom God hates, that is not a happy outlook. But we who love the Lord, we who love his law, we have the blessings of knowing that in him we are forgiven. We are redeemed. And we know that we cannot overcome sin completely, entirely in this life, but we also know that by God's Spirit, our growth in holiness, our sanctification means the steady decline of that influence within us. You know, friends, when you read through Scripture, you find that very often sin is spoken of as a type of death, if not death itself. And that's no accident. 
Because for God's people, we are truly alive only as we are in obedience to God. Apart from him, we are, as Paul writes, dead in our trespasses and sins. To put Paul's words in a simple, simpler way in this chapter, life, the God kind of life that's given to us as we are reborn, that life is righteousness. But sin is death. That's what we're redeemed from. Friends, to say it once again, we live in unprecedented times. I realize that any pastor of this church going back over the 130 years of its life probably could have said something similar to that any Lord's Day morning. But I don't think any of us who've been alive longer than 50, 60 years would deny that what we see today has never been seen before. Scientists and biologists claiming that they not only have tapped into the mysteries of human life and and deciphered the human genome and the DNA structure of, of life, but they're even claiming that they can genetically modify it and improve it. But God's word shows us, however, that any attempt to understand human nature and what makes us tick, apart from the fact that we are created to serve and magnify God by means of knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion, any effort like that that doesn't start from that foundation is doomed. It is doomed to failure. Whenever man forsakes his calling to be a covenant keeper, he forsakes life and he forsakes himself. He denies every fiber of his being and every talent of his nature. Because as wisdom, God's wisdom declares in Proverbs chapter 8, he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All they who hate me are in love with death. By God's grace, let us not be in love with death. Let us be in love with our Lord and his righteous way of life. Amen. Let us pray.